Yeah, I'm exhausted from picking you up on a chair and dancing around the studio. With you. Welcome back. We religion on the line. I'm Rabbi Joseph Tess. Filling in for the Deacon. I'm Alan Abramson. All right. The Deacon is at St. Killian's in Farmingdale today, preaching nonstop. It's like a, a telepreach. You know, just one after the other after the other. Uh, it's a parish mission, and it goes uh, through Wednesday. And Rabbi, he's going to be preaching every Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday night at 7.30 at the parish. How is it? You don't even know the schedule of synagogues. Well, you know St. Killian's and Farmingdale. What's going on here? That's between us, isn't it? <laughs> All right, let's go now to a good friend uh, and a colleague, Rabbi David Seth Kirshner, Senior Rabbi, Temple Emanuel in close to New Jersey, and... He is greatest distinction being president of the New York Board of Rabbis. Good morning, Rabbi. Good morning, Alan. Good morning, Rabbi Pesnik. How is everyone today? All the better for your asking if the deacon were here, he would say to you. Thank you so much. That's exactly what the deacon would say. (laughs) So, uh, obviously, much to discuss on this day. Uh, Passover approaching, and it's interesting. We sit at the Seder table, and some people use the same Haggadot as... Uh, we've been using over the years the wine stain. And I've never been to a Seder where everybody has the same Haggadah, right? You always have to announce five different pages um, because they're all I never knew you were supposed to use the same Haggadah. <laughs> and it's the Maxwell House one. Right, and all the different colors of uh, yarmulkes. But you, you sit at the table, David, and you try to find new meaning uh, in statements that have been pronounced for years. And I think, you know, there's obviously the traditional core of the Seder, but... What else do you bring to the Seder table uh, in your own experience? Uh, well, I think you have to bring a sense of what our purpose is there now, as opposed to it just being a historical purpose. So let, let me start off by just expressing my condolences. I know you had Commissioner on a few minutes ago, but I uh, just want to express my condolences to the family in Brooklyn on that devastating loss. Yeah. Um, what, what a pain and shame it is for um for not only the Jewish community, but for the world, and our thoughts and prayers are with them. And uh, You know better than any of us, uh, Rabbi Potasnik, the Tolet, the amazing and brave firefighters who uh, run into the flames to save people, and uh, we just want to extend our appreciation and love yeah. to them also. Well, thank you. I was, uh, with, I was with some of them last night talking to them, and you could see that uh, they were deeply shaken. Uh, you know, you walk in, and seven members of a family are no longer living. And you, all you see is devastation all around you. And you wonder, uh, the survivors here, there's a mother hopefully will survive. And how does she rebuild her life? And as a child, how does she rebuild her life? It's just, uh, it's a horror. We as clergy, there, there are no answers to certain challenges of life. There aren't. When, when Aaron's sons died, we're, we're told in the text, there was silence. And sometimes there are just no words, but it uh, doesn't mean our hearts aren't yeah. aching. But the community, I have to say this, community is so essential Yesterday, you had to see community coming together and saying, we're going to be here for uh, the survivors of the family. We're going to do more to protect one another. So that was something heartening uh, in, in, this, in spite of the heartbreaking uh, aspect of this. It's hard after events like that to not hug your kids tighter and not feel closer to those you're, you're part of and that you share love and respect for. And to me, that's, um, that's a great segue. That's, that's the epitome of what Passover is. It's not only the freedoms of our ancestors, but it's our freedoms today that I think we take for granted. So Abraham Joshua Heschel, of blessed memory, he used to be a teacher at JTS during the 60s and 70s. And there was all breaking news issue during that very um, tumultuous time in American history. One morning, he walks into the classroom, he puts his books down, he's a few minutes late, he's a disheveled uh, professor, his hair is every which way as his mind and books and par. 
The students are all waiting for him, and he says, the most amazing thing happened today. Did you hear about it? And all of the students had no idea what he was about. They listened to the news, but they didn't know what event had transpired. And Heschel looked at them, and he said, the sun rose from the sky this morning. Mm-hmm. And what he was saying to all of them, to these future rabbis and cantors and Jewish educators, was if you cannot get in the mindset to appreciate the miracles that happen every day, then you have no right to be religious pastors and leaders for the flock that you will tend to. And all of us are survivors every single day. All of us have gifts and blessings that surround us every minute. And our responsibility is to soak them up and to realize them and appreciate them, because if we don't, then the exodus from Egypt really has no impact anymore, and it should have impact because we're still survivors from that moment, even to this moment. Remember years ago, it was a rabbi, Sidney Greenberg, uh, who was ill in the hospital and, you know, not feeling great and uh, was worrying about the synagogue. A note uh, from, uh, I think it was the chairman of the board, said, Rabbi, don't rush back. You know, the younger person here, the young rabbi, has got everything covered. Just take take your time. We'll be all right. He says that was the worst thing he could have, <laughs> the worst thing he could have said to him because, you know, uh, you, you want to get back. But one of the things Greenberg said is, you know, all of a sudden I, I looked out the window and there was a beautiful sky and the water and all these things for years I just drove by and never looked at. And it took an illness to have me, you know, develop a better perspective. And, you know, sometimes it, it takes the kind of shocking events of life to help us uh, recalibrate uh, and reexamine our priorities. It's true. In our house, we just got a, a new puppy, and uh, he has lit up um, our home. And my next door neighbor, <laughs> not to mention what he's done to lit the up floor, or, or chewed up. <laughs> well, I was thinking of a different word, but I won't use it on the air. <laughs> uh, very good. Um, my next door neighbor is an anesthesiologist, who I think uh, moonlights as a philosopher. And as I was walking the puppy, he said to me, a dog is the best thing for you. And I said, why? He says, because it's going to get you outside every day, and you'll appreciate your surroundings that you otherwise take for granted. And, you know, he was exactly right, because I walk that dog two times a day, and I walk up and down the street, and I see things I never saw before, whether it's animals or the new flowers blooming and blossoming now for spring, whatever else it may be. And it's true. And sometimes it's these new things that give us new perspective. So... It says in the Talmud, when we change our place in life, we change our fortune. And sometimes we have to change our perspective, where we're seeing things from. And I think that's a critical part of the Seder. Yeah. When it says, What do you look like? When you hold up a mirror to yourself at the Seder, which is actually a custom we have, what do you look like? Do you look tired? Do you look excited? Do you look happy? Do you look worried? What are you bringing with you in your backpack as you're starting this journey? What are the most important things? Is it, is it an iPhone? Is it the puppy? Is it your family? Is it a values? These are the questions that I think need to be contemplated at a, at a Seder today, in addition to the ritual, to augment the ritual so that its importance is felt on us as well. You know, how quickly those moments become memories. I think of my parents, my father, who would spend so much time preparing the horseradish. You know, and some people used to wear masks because they used to cry. Right. Were, and my mother also assisting him. And I look back and I used to, you know, come home from college and look forward to being with him. Would bring, you know, a, a friend from college. And now they're no longer in my life. And all I have is the, is the memory. So as, you're, as you say, seize that moment, Buzz. Uh, it, it disappears very quickly in life. I, I'll throw one more thing in that, that I preach about every single year. And I think it's important for all the listeners to know. There's a, a line, a beautiful line, it's in Aramaic written um, in the beginning of the Haggadah that says, Kol dich Anyone who's hungry, let them come and eat. 
And we say that when we're sitting around Seder, and in my house we open the front door and we say that. We don't just open it for Elijah. But everyone who's sitting at the table knows they're going to get a good meal. You're going to get some brisket. You're going to get some chicken. You're going to get something to eat. But there are a lot of people in the world and in our tri-state community in particular that don't have a place to eat for Passover or for other meals during the week. And I believe if we know we're going to say that sentence, we have to do our part, our effort now, to ensure that no Jewish person, I would argue any person, doesn't have a place to eat on the eve of Passover. And people should open their hearts and their homes and make places at their Seder each and every time possible to feed the hungry. And I am so proud of the New York Board of Rabbis and your leadership, Joe, and all of the board's leadership that we have an amazing campaign that helps with those who are hungry. It's called the Passover uh, campaign from Mount Chitin for those who are in need. And it ensures that Jews all over our area, those who are indigent, those who are hungry, those who might be incarcerated, wherever they are, that they'll be afforded wine, they'll be afforded matzah, they'll be afforded haroset and the things necessary, because that is a quintessential Jewish ethic. How dare we feed our faces and enjoy the freedom and feast of, of the Passover Seder, knowing that our brothers and sisters could be hungry. We're speaking to Rabbi David Seth Kirshner, the senior rabbi of Temple Manuel in close to New Jersey, as well as the president of the New York Board of Rabbis. He's talking to us about Passover. Rabbi, I have to tell you, one of the most moving experiences that I've ever had at Passover uh, is because of Rabbi Potasnik. Uh He invited me one year to a Seder that's held for the developmentally disabled, uh, and they get around 450 developmentally disabled people, plus people that are there to, to help through the Seder. It is one of the most moving experiences you could possibly have to see uh, how it's Rabbi Williger. Uh, yeah, the Williger family and, and Rabbi Shlomo, Rabbi uh, Israel, and Ayla, the whole Williger family and children, and grandchildren. It's yeah, it's yeah. it's an extraordinary it experience. Is. They bring Passover in in, in all the detail with all the love. They create a, a family Passover for so many people, and and to me that it's the most moving experience I, I've ever had at, at Passover. Yeah, and that's another project board. David, before we let you go, and uh, thank you for some wonderful explanations, uh, Israel is on the minds of uh, so many of us. And I said to Alan before, I said, I find, I find the following very troubling, and I, I wonder what your reaction is. I pick up the New York Times yesterday, and I'm seeing article after article about Israel, and all of them critical. And I'm saying, my God, with all that Israel has done, do we only see the thorns? Aren't there roses as well? And there's no attempt to depict the good of Israel. You know, uh, as the psalmist said, see the goodness of Jerusalem. Here you have the different faith groups coming together. Here you have equality among so many of the citizens. Arabs are treated so much better than their own, their own countries. You have an Arab list. You don't have a Jewish list in any Arab country. An Arab list that but the third largest party in Israel, a joint list. And none of that is, is referenced. And all we do is, you know, attack after attack after attack. I understand some disappointment, but... That's not the whole story. It's not. David Wolpe tells this great story uh, from The Simpsons, where uh, Homer and Marge are hosting Thanksgiving, and Marge's mother walks in the door. And she opens it up, and she says to Marge, before I come in, I just want you to know you did nothing right. <laughs> and I've been in some of those homes, by the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too. Are you sure so, it was Marge's mother? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what I, what I love about that story, and what Wolpe does brilliantly about it, is he explains that there are some people who are allowed to give you criticism because we don't quite our love. 
And there's a part of me, you know, I, I just wrote a very um, uh, opinionated, forceful piece. You? About, I can't believe it. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, about some, some things that happened in the uh, Israeli uh, election that have left a, a sour taste in mine and other people's mouths. But for those who, were to, who would interpret that as questioning my steadfastness or my loyalty to the state of Israel or to its democratic process, that would be naive. And I think where you and I feel that rub is those who criticize Israel who don't have the foundation of love. It's no different than giving critique or advice or counsel to our children or to our loved ones. In the Bible, it's called tochacha, because the key to tochacha is a foundation of unquestioning love. But if we give rebuke to those that we don't have respect for, don't have love for, then it's just critical. And I think when we read those things in the paper, that's how it feels. When it comes from our own, when, when it's our parents giving it to us or we're opening it up for Thanksgiving, we know that there is that steadfastness of love. Um, and I think that there... I think one thing is that that's a reason why we have to insist that our moral compass is strongly calibrated regularly for all Israeli leaders, elected and appointed. And I also think it's important for those who have that unquestioning love to not only be critical at times, but also to be just as loud in how they shout that support and love well, some so said, that people can feel it. Yeah, someone said we need, you know, we have unloving critics uh, but you also have uncritical lovers. So there is a balance. And, you know, interesting in the Bible, it says you have to love your neighbor. And then right after that, juxtaposed, it says you have to rebuke your neighbor. So love and rebuke go together. But you're right. I read some of these papers and some of these writers. All I ever read is the rebuke. I never see the love. I never see any uh, of the positive. It's all negative. And, and I think that's so wrong. Because, you know, Israel is a miracle in terms of what has transpired and what is happening. And, you know, so we, we, we keep painting the negative. I wonder what impact it has on our kids. What do they well, see? Uh, what are they going to say? Well, Alan and Joe, think about this for a moment. How many people called me, wrote me, said something to me about the case that happened at UCLA that showed uh, bigotry and discrimination towards a Jewish student? There, you, you would have to have your head in the sand over the past 10 days to not know this case if you affiliate anyway Jewishly. But I would be hard-pressed to find one person out of 50 who knew that Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, just visited Israel and Herzliya to open their first R&D center mm-hmm. outside of the United States. Right. So, and it's not on the front page of the Times. It's not, it's on, the, not on any you know, page of the Times. You know, the business that section, to me, right. but, but that, to me, is the biggest antidote to the BDS movement, to the boycott, divestment, sanctions movement. I don't see people taking their Apple iPods and iPhones and throwing them in the garbage because Tim Cook invested in Herzliya. But we should be spreading that word of the positive as much as the negative. And when we give the negative, people need to know we're giving it in a way there's unconditional love still. But we have that right to do it. We have to do it. That's the very beauty of what it is to be part of a democracy, to be part of our people. Because if we, if we blindly accept all that's done, then we're fanatics, we're radicals. And that is a very dangerous place to be. All right. Rabbi David Seth Kirshner, close to New Jersey. This is the original Temple Emanuel. <laughs> the one on Fifth Avenue is the closer. That's the original. I've heard that. Oh, it's oh. just the original Temple. <laughs> <laughs> and president of the New York Board of Rabbis. You know what's amazing about him? He does so many things, he does them all well. But I don't live with him, remember. <laughs> From my perspective, he does them all well. All right, thanks so much for being with us today. Aziz and sweet pace. You, you too, and your now. Family. Have a great day. Take Bye-bye. care, Rabbi. Bye-bye.